The only thing I knew about Japan was the movie uh, Godzilla. <laughs> and a Jerry Lewis movie called Geisha Boy. Hello, I'm Joseph Scholes, and welcome to the Deep Culture Podcast, where we explore culture and the science of mind. This is a podcast for people who move between different cultural worlds. We talk about intercultural experiences, and we dig into the science and the psychology of culture and mind. Today, we have a special treat on the Deep Culture Podcast. I had a conversation with Bob Whiting, uh, the best-selling author who has made a career of finding cross-cultural insight in unexpected places like baseball and the Japanese mafia. His first book, The Chrysanthemum and the Bat, was a bestseller, and it accomplished something that was really remarkable. It was a cross-cultural exploration of Japanese culture through the supposedly all-American sport of baseball. So let me read something from the foreword. At first glance, baseball in Japan appears to be the same as the U.S. version, but it isn't. The Japanese view of life, stressing group identity, cooperation, hard work, respect for age and seniority, and face, has permeated nearly every aspect of the sport, giving it a distinct character of its own. His book, You Gotta Have Wa, earned a Pulitzer Prize nomination. It's a must-read in Japanese studies departments. His book, Tokyo Underworld, explores the darker side of Japanese society after World War II, corruption and organized crime. I've known Bob uh, for many years, and he had mentioned to me that he was writing his memoir, and now it's out, and it was a perfect excuse to talk. So we sat down in a conference room at the Foreign Correspondence Club in Tokyo. You'll hear uh, the sound has a bit of an echo. Uh, and there were even some sirens in the background sometimes. The title of his memoir is Tokyo Junkie, 60 Years of Bright Lights and Back Alleys and Baseball. Now, I knew he had a remarkable life. He grew up in a small town, went off to see the world. He arrived in Japan in 1962, started a 60-year love affair with Tokyo, but he has also spent time living all over the world. His wife is a UN diplomat. And I found out that he had gotten a handwritten note of congratulations on his memoir from President George W. Bush. I get the feeling, however, that Despite all of this, Bob still considers himself uh, something of a small-town boy. And so I was just thrilled to sit down with him and learn a little bit about his journey. I started off by asking him about the title of his memoir, Tokyo Junkie. Bob, it is an honor to welcome you <laughs> to you the the Deep Culture Podcast. It's an honor to be here. Tokyo Junkie. Right. <laughs> is is this an addiction? So what is what is the addiction? 
Well, it occurred to me that that was a really apropos title because I do seem to be addicted to this country. I tried to leave once. I swore I'd never come back. And here I am. But I think that a lot of the listeners on this podcast will really understand how you can get hooked on it. Yes. And I was looking the other day at Facebook and saw this note that was posted from George W. Bush <laughs> to you, congratulating you on your memoir. Could, could you read this? A handwritten letter. A handwritten letter, right? Dear Robert, I just finished Tokyo Junkie. I like the book a lot. The stories were excellent. The descriptions vivid. Thanks for the shout out. I'm sure Bill, number 42 in parenthesis, will appreciate this as well. Uh, I'm a little surprised you did not include a little paragraph on Bobby V, Bobby Valentine, the baseball manager. After all, there was a, a beer named for him in Japan, and you seem to like beer. <laughs> Keep writing. <laughs> that totally floored me to get that in the mail. It's great. He's even got words crossed out. On the, the, uh, so, you know, what a neat thing. You've really had an amazing journey. You started in a small town right. in Northern California, and you have gone through so much and witnessed so much. What was that small town like? How were you at that time? Oh, uh, well, Eureka, I don't think anybody in Eureka had ever seen a subway. It was a town of 35,000 on the coast, fishing and logging town right in the heart of the Redwoods. You were really like isolated from civilization was the feeling that you got. If you like to go fishing in the mountains or hiking in the redwoods, it was a great place. You know, I was having problems. I graduated from high school. I graduated at a very you know, young age, 17, and uh, went to university. And I, and I was just waiting until I was 18 so that I could join the military and get out because I just had to, had to leave. So were you one of these people who just wanted to get out, who wanted to go see the world? Or what was, what was your motivation? I had, a, I had a, a very strained home life. My mother was, she grew up in New Jersey. And uh, when she was 12 years old, her parents just left, just left them there. Her father was a racetrack junkie. Her mother was a barroom floozy drug addict. And when she was 16, she had to go down to the, the local morgue and identify her, her mother's body. And she never got over it. She just had so much anger inside her that she just never knew how to deal with it. My father was a mechanic, very good with his hands. He could make cameras out of nothing. But he spent as much time as humanly possible away from the house. She was always yelling at him. And so I just had to, to get out. I mean, I felt sorry for her because she really had a, a miserable life. But I just couldn't stand it. So I just, we had a big blowout one day, so I just got in a car, drove to San Francisco and joined the Air Force. Then I had to drive back to Eureka and park the car <laughs> and get on a bus and go to. <laughs> well, so it was not some dream of seeing the world. It was to get out of where you were. Well, yeah, it was to get out. Once I got in the Air Force, they, uh, you know, they give you all these tests. You know, they put me in this electronic surveillance school for, uh, for analyzing the data from surveillance flights. And that's what I wound up doing in Japan. I went to basic training in Lackland. 
uh, Air Force Base Texas uh, outside San Antonio, and then they sent me to Biloxi, Mississippi. And I went to a tech school there for several months. And they said, where do you want to go? Sergeant called me in at the end of the, this particular semester. I said, I want to go to Berlin, because that's where all the spy action was. And he said, okay, sure, no problem, son. <laughs> then I get this assignment to Japan. I didn't even know where Japan was. You know, I thought it was somewhere near Hong Kong. And the only thing I knew about Japan was the movie uh, Godzilla <laughs> and a Jerry Lewis movie called Geisha Boy. Bob arrived in Japan the year that I was born before computers or the internet. It was a time when stereotypes and racial slurs were common, especially for a country that was recently the enemy. Talk about culture shock. And then you arrive in, in Japan in 1962, was it? You were 19? Yes. It's hard to imagine the impact that that would make on this young man from Eureka. What were your first impressions? Well, the smell was the first big impression, you know, because they use human fertilizer on the rice paddies. And this was, uh, you know, it was fairly rural area. You could get a really nice view of Mount Fuji. And so then I started going down to, to Shinjuku and then to Tokyo Station and then the, what struck me was the crowds, you know, just a sea of uh, black hair in Tokyo Station, you know, and, and at certain hours of the day, it was so crowded, you know, they needed platform pushers to get people in the train during the commuting, the rush hour in the morning and evening. Uh, uh, it was it was so polluted that you on most days you, you could barely see Tokyo Tower. And this auto, auto pollution and also industrial pollution. Uh, they, we were told, don't drink the tap water. You know, you get diseased. The, uh, the rats everywhere. It was very, you know, un, wasn't very sanitary place. Well, Plus, there was a lot of crime. And this is really different from the image that most people today have of modern Japan, modern Tokyo. How did all of this strike you as this young American? I mean, this was post, still post-war period. I mean, on the base, there were a lot of people who didn't like Japan, a lot of people in the military. You know, they had relatives who died in the war. They still remembered that. You know, it was only 17 years since the war had ended. And they kind of looked down on the Japanese. There was a lot of there were a lot of dumb people in the military. So, what was different about you? The first time I went to Tokyo, I was just overwhelmed by the energy of the place. I mean, it was when I talk about the city being addictive. It was addictive because this energy, it just sucked you in, you know. I, it's like just something came over you. I just said, I've got to be here. There's just so much to see, so much to do. You know, where do you begin? There were so many bars and restaurants and nightclubs that you couldn't go to them all. There were coffee shops everywhere. Every coffee shop had a personality. There was one that was run by this French ballerina. There was another one 
where the, all the, the, the waitresses wore wedding dresses. Or uh, there was another one in Conda that just played nothing but classical music all day. Five floors with these deep red carpets and velvet walls. And, and you just sit, buy a book and just sit there and read it all day. Plus there was, uh, I discovered the Yomiuri Giants that had a baseball team. They had this uh, player named Sadahara O, oh, who was world, went on to set the, break the world home run record. Uh, it was just every day, it seemed, there was an education. I learned something new. At a certain point, you had to decide whether to stay with the military right. or to stay in Japan. I guess that was in 65, after three years. Yes. And I think this is something that a lot of expatriates face, is it the, do I leave or do I stay? Right. So what was that decision like for you? I... It wasn't really all that hard. I got a, a hard time, other, some the people that I worked with. I was actually, I was offered a job by NSA, the National Security Agency, but Tokyo had made such an impression. It had become a high-tech megalopolis in the time that I was there that they, the James Bond crew came and filmed You Only Live Twice in 1966. So there was such a buzz going on. The message from everyone in Tokyo is we're just getting started. We're on our way. Watch out world. And again, I just couldn't bring myself to leave. I wanted to see. I wanted to watch it. I, I couldn't understand why these other people didn't want the same thing I did, but they thought I was just as crazy as I thought they were. But, but it doesn't surprise me because especially I've been in Japan and seeing plenty of expatriates who never learn Japanese, for example, who kind of hold themselves apart. Yeah. And they take advantage of being a white foreigner, if they happen to be white, right. and get, you know, get treated nicely all the time. And they don't want to give that up. But when you left the military, you became a student. Yeah. You were living in Komagome. So that must have been a real shift from being on the base to living in this small apartment in Komagome, much more local. Yeah local experience. Well, I was I, one of the companies I was teaching English that was Toda Construction Company, and there was a, a man named Kusaka, Mr. Kusaka, who had, spoke some English, and he helped me find an apartment in that area. It was right across the street from the Toda Construction Company dormitory. So sometimes I would go over there and use their dormitory bath. I mean, the public bath was just down the street, but everybody and his brother was uh, still watching you. And also, uh, I liked baseball, and I would go to Karakuen Stadium and sit up in the jumbo stands, and you had this tremendous view of the city and the Chuo line in the distance at Suidabashi. And it was really quite nice, and the Giants had a really strong team. Most nights, uh, there would be a, a, a Giants baseball game on every night of the year, you know, telecast nationwide. And I'd watch, I couldn't speak Japanese very well, but the, half the words were in English. But, you know, home run, strike, kiboru, auto, seifu. <laughs> and uh, so it was something to relate to. And so that's how I started, you know, picking up kanji. I was studying Japanese at Sofia University, but I would go in the morning and pick up the Nikon Sports and take my dictionary to a coffee shop and I'd try to translate an article. And after a while, you began to see the patterns and it, it made sense. And because I really wanted to know what was going on, you know, 
And they had all the pictures and all the interviews and, you know, in-depth coverage. And uh, I learned about these players and their personalities and, you know, which Turkish bath they went to <laughs> the game. And uh, it was really an education. Well, you have wonderful description in your memoir about sitting in these cafes and, and studying the right. sports paper in Japanese. But at the same time, you were studying politics at Sofia. You weren't just hanging out watching well, baseball games. Yeah, but I, I was really, really interested in baseball and politics. <laughs> I just did it because I had to study something. But in the beginning, that's what gave me the motivation to want to learn more. Well, so you graduated from Sofia, and you started working for Encyclopedia Britannica, right. among other things, I guess. Your memoir is organized by section, and the section that covers this part of your life is called The Degenerate. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so you're, you're a self-described salaryman, uh, but it sounds like you were doing some hard drinking and exploring, exploring the underside of Tokyo a bit. Every and, night. You also tell the story of uh, getting a knock on the door late at night yes. uh, with someone that was coming to collect a gambling debt. And right. this was your introduction to the underworld. the underworld. Can you tell that story? You know, I would usually go out after work, you know, in the Kabukicho and these other places. And I'd come back and I'd go to this snack across the street. And they had a little, you know, baseball betting pool on they had the game on TV. And so you could bet a thousand yen or two thousand, you know, small amounts. And I remember, and that's what I used to do every night go in there, have a one beer before I crash. And I made this bet, a really stupid bet, and I wound up losing 30,000 yen. And I didn't have it on me. So I just left. I told myself, I'll come back tomorrow. And then midnight, this knock on the door, this beefy little guy with scars over his eyes and a suede jacket and a buzz cut and ramrod posture and this just the right glare, intimidating. I've come to collect the San Man. And so I tell him I've got to go to the bank tomorrow and get it. He says, okay. Don't make me come back here again. That's what he said. He showed me his badge. It said Sumiyoshi Gang. So I got the money and went back the next day. And I gave him, went down to the uh, the snack across the street, the Bokido, and gave it to him. And he said, okay, sit down. Let me buy you a beer. And he started, he asked me where I was from, you know, what I was doing in Japan. And then he said, okay, here's the deal. So I'm Okinawa. Japanese don't like Okinawans, and you're American, and Japanese don't like Americans either. So let's be friends. And we embarked on this friendship, you know. I'd see him, you know, two or three times a week, and he would take me out to these different places, and, you know, the Turkish bath or a new pachinko shop opening up or a bar or some Korean restaurant. And uh, he introduced me to his boss, who... They took me to this big gang reception. I don't know what the reason was for, but the boss gave a speech and he was there in his white silk kimono. They got up and sang some songs 
and uh, these old Japanese war songs. <clears throat> and then uh, he made me get up and sing a song. I didn't know any songs, so I sang a Star Spangled Banner. <laughs> then they asked me to sing another one, so I sang Elvis Presley's uh, I Can't Help Falling in Love With You. I know, I knew the first verse. And so that I, I was in after that. And uh, I just, everybody knew me in this gang in Higashi Nakano. And uh, it was quite nice. And uh, I learned a lot about that. You know, they said the, ga the gang boss found out that I had written my thesis, my graduation thesis at Sophia University on the Liberal Democratic Party and its factions. And I had interviewed Nakasone. Later, who became the prime minister. Who later became the prime minister. Uh, and I, I told these guys that I had met Nakasone. And they, oh, that was really great. Hey, we're big fans of Nakasone. You know, we support the Liberal Democratic Party. You know, whenever there's an election, we go out and corral people. We make sure they vote. We make sure they vote for the LDP. <laughs> yeah. I think it's hard for someone who hasn't lived in... Japan for a long time to understand just how remarkable it is to befriend members of the Yakuza. And the fact that you were learning about this underside of Japanese politics mm. in this way is something that's remarkable, not just for a foreigner, but would be remarkable for anybody. And it's kind of incredible, really. <laughs> Well, you, ha uh, you have to be, have an open mind and you also have to be a little stupid. <laughs> and uh, because if I had known a little more than what I did at the time, maybe I wouldn't have done it, but I was fairly open-minded. Well, there's really, um, there's a kind of romantic images associated with Yakuza. Right. But then also a pretty scary side as well. And I think it sounds like you had some scary experiences. Well, this guy, you know, the guy who collected the 30,000, the guy who said, I'm Okinawa and let's be friends. Uh, we, you know, I had a very nice relationship and uh, took me around. Uh, I, one night, this was, you know, several months into our relationship, we were... Uh, in Koenji outside one of the Sumiyoshi clubs built this building where they had a couple clubs. And it was midnight and you could never catch a cab at midnight in Japan at those times, and in Tokyo especially. And so, you know, what you had to do then was hold up four fingers. I mean, I'll pay four times the meter rate and they'll pick you up. And the cabs would come by in the main drag, you know, at about 10 miles an hour and to see who was willing to pay that. And this uh, guy didn't want to pay four times. He just held up his hand like that, and the cab driver didn't stop. So he kicked the side of the cab where the, by the gas tank. He just put a, gave it a karate kick and put a big dent in it. And the cab driver slammed on the brakes and got out of the car and said, Konoyado. And this guy just jumped on him and just, beat the holy living daylights out of him. I mean, on top of him, elbow in the face, blood spurting. I had to pull him off. I thought, you know, they was gonna kill the guy and we'd wind up arrested in jail. So we 
we went back to Higashinagan, went back to the snack, the Bokido, and sat down, and he was cooling off, and orders a beer and drinks it. And he says, see, I said, I'm sorry. And he says, Oriwa Ningen Kuzuda. I'm just human trash. And he pulls out this switchblade from his pocket and he just slices his cheek. Not real deeply, but he did it as a way of punishing himself for losing his temper. And I found out that most people in the Yakuza have, have real, you know, hair-triggered tempers. He was like that. And so I thought after that, I think I'm getting a, a bit too close to these guys. You described this by saying that you had to pull out of a self-destructive tailspin into the dark heart of its seductions. I guess the turning point came when the, I'd written this program, this language course for kids that was very successful. And so they offered me the expat package, you know, the really ex West, expensive Western-style apartment. So I was living in a little dump then and uh, big raise, and they said, you're on track to be vice president. And I almost said yes, but this voice inside, before I had a chance to say yes, the voice inside me came out and said, no, I don't think so. I knew I had to get out because uh, I was just killing myself with the lifestyle I was leading. And besides, I'd never, I didn't know anything about the United States. I didn't know if I had what it took to make it in the United States. I didn't know my own country, so I moved to New York. Well, you had a couple of great turns of phrase. You said, I had embarked on a voyage of self-discovery, but somewhere along the line, I switched to autopilot. Yes, <laughs> that's right. And I, it just dawned on me one night, you know, what are you doing? You know, and I could just see myself on living this life for the next several years and winding up as a 40-year-old uh, Nowhere, man, with a decent income. It can be hard to go back to your home country after many years abroad. It's hard to find your footing. And Bob had been living a pretty wild life in Tokyo. So how would he adjust to being back in the U.S.? Well, I was fascinated by the change that you went through when you went to New York. First of all, it must have been a big shock to go from Tokyo to New York, but then you had some friends there and you were talking about your experiences and you said that they really liked to hear about baseball. They were interested in you yeah. about baseball. Well, they talk about the Liberal Democratic Party and, you know, the labor unions and that put everybody to sleep right away. <laughs> but then I, I, I talk about Sadahado Oh, this great home run hitter for the Yomiuri Giants who would practice every night with a samurai sword. He would swing at strips of paper suspended from the ceiling and, and slice them in two, which is very difficult to do because the, the sword is fairly heavy and the force of the wind from the swing would knock the paper out of the way. So you had to snap your wrist at just the right time. And he could do this. And he got really strong wrists. And I would tell them about the uh, how they the, the Japanese had adopted the martial arts philosophy of endless training and development of spirit. And that's when the people around me kept pushing me to write a book. So, Someone bet you $500 that you couldn't 
Well, the, I was intimidated by the idea of writing a book because I'd never really written anything. And I was kind of scared, you know, I, that I wouldn't know how to do it or if it wouldn't be very good. So this one guy, Dwight, that I'd work with, he, one day he just, well, I guess you don't have what it takes. <laughs> and I said, oh, I'll bet you 500 bucks I'll have a book. And it just pissed me off. I'll bet you I can do it. I'll bet you 500 bucks I, I do it. I'll have a, a book in a year. And I finished it in a year. Surprised myself. Could you have written that if you had stayed in Tokyo? And maybe not. I mean, being in New York, being back in the U.S., having this outsider's perspective once again to explain, was this a way for you to kind of digest and make sense yes. of all that you yeah, had lived through? that very perceptive. The differences became really apparent in New York. I said, Jesus. I find myself, you know, pouring beer for somebody and <laughs> or, you know, bowing on the phone and people are looking at me. What the hell is wrong with this guy? You know? And so it just helped put everything into focus, moving, where uh, I don't think I, th I th was thinking about it that much, you know, those last years in Tokyo. But going back to New York, you know, it really became, uh, came into sharp focus. Then I, once I got the contract, I was turned down by 12 publishers in a row. I mean, first of all, to write a book about Japanese baseball at that time uh, was something no one else was right. doing. And I mean, because everyone knows your work now, right. it seems the most normal thing in the world. But at the time, it's hard to even think of what it must have seemed like for people to first come across this book about Japanese baseball and cultural differences. Right. Well, the, uh, Japan was just starting to get noticed, you know, as an economic power, you know. So I could sell it as a, a way of looking at the Japanese character, personality, a way of an easy way of understanding Japan without having to wade through economic or political treatises. Your life was so different when you came back to Tokyo the second time. Yeah. After you had found your place. I yes. mean, one of the difficult things about living in a foreign country is how do you find a way to belong there? Yes. And you found a way to belong in Japan, even as you were belonging in the United States. Yeah. And in a way that reflected your interests and in a way which used your talents. And that's when I found my happiness because that stuff that I was writing was worthwhile. And just the doing this pursuit of excellence, which is this perfectionism that Jap Japan has. Uh, it makes life worthwhile. It, you can, because as a writer, you can never write something that's completely perfect, unless your name is Ernest Hemingway. <laughs> right. But uh, it's that constant pursuit that gives meaning to your daily life. Well, and you were writing from a perspective that other people hadn't found. And you were saying, okay, this very American game of baseball actually is a window to look deeply into yeah. another culture and not only another culture but very deep parts of japanese culture which are hard for outsiders to understand yes and you 
tell stories through baseball that kind of illustrate these deeper parts of culture, which are very difficult to explain and express. And I think in the field of intercultural education, for example, one of the challenges is how do you talk about difference without trivializing, without stereotyping? How do you talk about deeper difference without losing the fact that we also share common humanity? Uh, Yet somehow you manage to find this reconciliation between things that we all share as human beings and these very deep differences between different societies. And you did it through baseball. (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah, it was an American sport that the Japanese uh, adopted in uh, 1872. It was introduced by an American professor right after the Meiji uh, Reformation. And the... The Japanese liked baseball because it was their first group sport. All they had before were martial arts. So it gave them a chance to exercise their group dynamics on an athletic field. There was a school called the First Higher School of Tokyo that was where the movers and shakers of Japan's prep school for students 18 to 22 who were going on to Imperial University. And these are the people who wind up running Japan. And half of the students were from samurai families. And they formed a baseball team. But these people turned baseball into a martial art <clears throat> based on this samurai ethos of total dedication. And since baseball is something that all Americans understand, something all Japanese understand, it's a perfect window. And it was just luck. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was luck, but it was it was insight and it was hard work and it led to so many other things. Of course, you profiled American players in Japan and all of the many of the cultural differences and struggles that they right. sometimes went through or Bobby Valentine, the yes. manager who came to manage in Japan, right. the ups and downs that he had, but also baseball as a window into cultural change, the way that Hideo Nomo affected American baseball, or how American perceptions of Japan changed because of someone like Ichiro Suzuki. So there's so much uh, richness in that you have been mining from that. It's really remarkable. Bob has written about more than baseball. His book, Tokyo Underworld, explored a side of post-war Japan through the eyes of an American gangster, Nick Zepetti, who was part of a corrupt underworld of black markets, organized crime, dirty politics. It was a book that only Bob could write. I've been taking a lot of your time, but we have to mention Tokyo Underworld. This was a story of the kind of the dark side of the American occupation. Right. Then I met Nick Zepetti, and it just, uh, his story was so colorful, it just blew everything else out of the water. He had such a colorful way of saying things, and he would say anything. He got deported for black marketeering. 
He got out of the army and worked for the, the as a civil servant. And he was running beer in the black market. He was working with the Sumiyoshi the gang. And he got to, arrested and deported. And he came back on a fake passport. I did about 20 hours of interviews, and but I didn't know a lot about the history of the gangs, the post-war history. And I educated myself on post-war history and those events, and it got really complicated. And when I was finished, it was quite an education. You know, your work is, on the one hand, quite optimistic. It really sheds light on differences that people might think are too big to overcome. Right. And... There's a real optimism to the insights that you bring, but also this dark side of saying, actually, there's this other stuff going on here. So where do you come out in the end on this optimism versus this interest you've got in kind of turning the rock over? I would I guess I'm cautiously optimistic. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I've seen too much of you know, the unpleasant side of human nature. So I don't know. The driving force of humanity is to survive. So I imagine we'll all survive. Well, last question then. What advice would you have given to your 19-year-old self arriving in Tokyo? So if I was, I would say to a 19-year-old, you know, find some way to make a trip around the world and spend some time in, in all these different countries and take a good look about it. And then come back. Don't worry about being a foreigner. Just accept the fact that you're a foreigner. Don't worry about fitting in. Learn the customs, learn the language, be polite. But I hear people complain about, you know, well, they never accept you. Well, that's okay. They don't have to. Live your own life, you know, you make your own little world. You've got your, you know, family and friends and professional associates. That's all you need. Well, and you have certainly found a place for yourself and a rich life. It's inspirational to see all that you have done. So <laughs> Thanks. It is, it is really great. And I really recommend your memoir, Tokyo Junkie, 60 Years of Bright Lights and Back Alleys and Baseball. Robert Whiting, I want to thank you so much for taking this time to talk to me. Best of luck with your future projects. Oh, thank you very much, Joseph. It's an honor to, to be on this program. A special thanks to Bob Whiting today. Let's meet up again soon at the Foreign Correspondence Club. And as always, thank you to the podcast team, Yvonne Vanderpol, Robinson Fritz, Ishita Ray, Zaina Matar, Daniel Glintz, and everyone at JII. The Deep Culture Podcast is sponsored by the Japan Intercultural Institute. We are an educational NPO dedicated to intercultural education and research. I'm the director of JII. If you want to support this podcast, why don't you become a member of JII? It's only $45 a year. In addition to this podcast, JII offers the Brain, Mind, and Culture Masterclass. It's a blended learning course, webinar, podcast, online learning, facilitated by Yvonne Vanderpol and me. And it introduces the latest insights of culture, brain, and mind sciences to those living and working interculturally. You will gain a deeper understanding of the psychology of intercultural experiences, We have a great learning community. JII also sponsors a learning circle throughout the year. 
To find out more, just do a web search for the Japan Intercultural Institute or send me an email at dcpodcast at japanintercultural.org. Sign up for GII's mailing list. You'll get our newsletter. It will keep you up on everything we're doing. Or just come back next month for another episode of the Deep Culture Podcast. <laughs>